This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Today I'm going to talk a bit about um, Hanukkah and, and then dreams. Hanukkah and dreams, because we're going to put the parasha, it's all about dreams. Hanukkah and dreams, there's different kinds of dreams we're going to talk about. But let's talk first talk about Hanukkah. So it's interesting, historically three things happened. Three things happened in the time of the Maccabees. Three things, seminal events in Jewish history happened in the time of the Maccabees. Number one is the end of recorded miracles. The last miracle that we have in our history, at least the last, the last recorded miracle we have in our history, obviously we have many miracles we have every single day. Um, we talked about in our prayers, right? Hashem does miracles with us today. We just don't know them. We just can't recognize them all the time. But this is a revealed miracle that people recognized and talked about and celebrated, and that is a miracle of Hanukkah. It's the last recorded miracle in our history. Imagine, the last recorded miracle in our history was the lights of Hanukkah, which took place around 2,200 years ago. 2,200 years ago, that's number one. Number two, the last prophets, the last prophets prophesied uh, before Hanukkah. They passed away. They passed away before Hanukkah. No more prophecy. Prophecy ended with it lasted even through Purim, because Mordechai was the prophet, Malachi, and the last prophets. But the prophecy ended with Hanukkah. No more prophecies. So again, a dark period in our history. We had the last miracle, and we had the last prophet. And Shimon HaTzadik was the last member of the Anshe Knesset, the leaders of the great assembly, the last great prophets. Shimon HaTzadik was the chief, uh, chief priest, high priest, who greeted Alexander, we talked about last week, and our last great leader, and the miracle, some miracles kept on going in the Beit HaMikdash during his time. And when he passed away, those miracles stopped. So Shimon HaTzadik, we have the last great leader, the last great prophet. And we have the third thing that happened was, which is a good, was the rabbis abolished the inclination for idol worship. Jews don't have that inclination, at least, for idol worship that was prevalent before that, that caused the destruction of the first temple. So we don't have that inclination of idolatry. So two bad things and one good thing. The end of miracles, the end of prophecy. And the good thing is no more inclination for idolatry. Well, hopefully not. So three things happened in the seminal period. The Greek period came after Purim, 200 years after Purim. The miracle of Purim was Hester Panim, was uh, through, through, uh, Natural events. The miracle of Purim happened through natural events. It was Hester Panim, the beginning of the end, the beginning of the dark periods where no more prophecy started in Purim, but really ended in Hanukkah. No more prophecy. Purim still had prophets around, and they told her that she could be included in Tanakh. That's why the Begilat Esther is in Tanakh, whereas Hanukkah story is not in Tanakh. Someone asked me this week, why is the Hanukkah story not in Tanakh in the books, the 24 books of the Bible? And the answer is because there was no more prophecy. It takes a prophet and the leaders of the great assembly to tell us this is a story worthy of being written up and put into our Bible. But since there's no more prophecies and no more leaders of the great assembly, the last one of Shimon HaTzadik passed away, no one can tell us. So it remained in the Apocrypha. The story of the Maccabees, Maccabees 1, Maccabees 2, the stories about the Maccabees remained in the Apocrypha, which is um, outside the recognized 24 books of the Bible. It's the Apocrypha. We're outside. You can get it. You can download it. The book of Maccabees 1, Maccabees 2. But it's outside the recognized Torah. Why is that? No more prophets. No more Anshayk Nesatura. No more leaders of the Great Assembly who could in- had the power to include it in the Bible. So that's very important. The Talmud in Yuma asks, Esther is compared to the morning. Why? Just as the morning ends the night, so Esther ends the period of open miracles. Esther was compared to the morning. It was the end of a period of open miracles. And that is why there's no mention of God in the Megillah. There's no, if you look through the Megillah of Esther, not a single time does it say Hashem's name. It has a kind of uh, replacement, and that is the word Hamelech, the king. And the rabbi said when it says the king, it's referring to the king of kings, that's Hashem. But it doesn't say Hashem explicitly. There's no mention of God's name in the Megillah. So we see over there there's hiddenness. God's presence is hidden in history from the Megillah onwards. 
we see semblances, we see flickering, we see candles. The smallest light you can get is candlelight. That's the miracle of Hanukkah, the last recorded miracle. So it's, it's like the ending of Purim. It's the Purim, start is, uh, Purim story is the beginning of the end of miracles, and Hanukkah is the end of miracles, the last revealed miracle. Seder Olam, chapter 30, talks about the history of the Jewish people, Seder Olam. As why is Esther compared to the morning we talked about? Until the time of Alexander, the prophets prophesied with divine inspiration. From this time on, that's it. No more prophecy. Incline your words and listen to the words of the wise. Incline your ears and listen to the words of the wise. That's it. Today we have hachamim, but we don't have prophecy. We have wise people. Sometimes wise people are better than prophets. They can see things that prophets couldn't see. However, today we have no prophecy. No clear uh, messages from God. We have no clear messages from God about the future, about events, explain the events, tell us what we're doing wrong, that was the job of the prophets, we don't have that today. It's not clear today. So the Greek period signaled the end of prophecy and the ascendance of rabbinic tradition. Tradition, 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 the ascendance of tradition, no more prophecy. Jewish law, Talmud, oral law, Mishnah, um, relies on the insights of the wise rather, rather than the insights of prophets who had direct revelation. So it's interesting that Hanukkah period signaled the end of these three things. Idolatry, for Jewish people, the, the desire for idolatry signaled the end of prophecy and signaled the end of open miracles. So that's a very fascinating. So what's, what's the reason? The answer is because evil and good, there's a balance in the world of evil and good. And that gives us free choice. So when the inclination for idolatry is removed, prophecy is also removed, just to keep that balance of free will going. So that's 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 the reason why it's uh, kept like that. So at the very time when Greece was challenging us with their culture, and we were losing all direct experience of the truths of our own beliefs, no more miracles, no more prophets. So they are challenging us with their culture, and that's why a lot of Jews headed for the exits. A lot of Jews in the Greek period became Hellenists. They went and they got taken in by the Greek culture. A lot of, even the descendants of the Maccabees themselves, the, the, the future husband and kings, were Hellenized. Amazing. So Greek culture was tremendously alluring, just like Western culture today for a lot of Jews in colleges, but not so. <laughs> not, not today, because what's going on in the colleges today, but but I'm saying in general, Western culture also had an appeal. Science, technology, philosophy, that's part of the Greek emphasis. That's Hellenism. And that had a tremendous influence on Judaism. A lot of Jews were heading for the exits. And so that's a very important idea. There's a, another an interesting idea. Now, the question is, why did the Maccabees not use regular oil for the mineral? Number one is there was no mineral. The mineral was defiled by the Greeks, it was taken away, it was gold, solid gold, and they had to replace the mineral. Now, in, when, what do they use for the mineral? So the rabbis say in the Talmud, they had they used a made a temporary mineral made out of wood. People don't know, realize that, they made a temporary mineral out of wood. So the question is, if you can use a temporary mineral made out of wood, then why can't you use regular oil, which is not, not uh, pure? Why did they spend so much time looking for the pure bottle of oil? We have a general rule when there's no more, when everyone is defiled. As all the Maccabees were defiled, anyone who fights a war and kills people and touches dead bodies is defiled. So why are they so concerned about using pure olive oil? What's the big thing about purity of the olive oil? Why couldn't they use regular olive oil? They use the regular wooden menorah. Why couldn't they use regular olive oil? Why did, you know, it just takes eight days to get regular olive oil. That's why the miracle lasted for eight days. They only found one bottle that they wanted to use that bottle. What's that symbolism of the pure olive oil? Number two is, why did the Greeks go out of their way? It doesn't say they smashed the bottle of oil. It says, v'timu et hashmanim. They defiled the oil. What does that symbolize? Why they go out of their way? They could have just taken all the bottles of oil and smashed them. They didn't. They opened each bottle and touched the oil to make it defiled. Imagine what, what they went through. That's painstaking, defiling oil. Imagine if I was Greek, I would just smash the oil. I had to open the cork and put my finger inside to defile the oil. They knew all these laws of, of ritual purity and impurity. 
And obviously, they had some guidance from some other, other people. Anyway, it's interesting that why didn't... So number one is why did the Maccabees, were they so concerned about finding pure oil? Well, they used a simple menorah, they could have used impure oil. Everyone was defiled anyway. Number two is why the Greeks got out of the way of defiling the oil and not smashing the bottles of oil. So here we have a beautiful idea. This, this amazing concept is the Greeks did not want to, want to destroy Jews. The Greeks did not want to destroy the physical Jew. They wanted to corrupt the oil, the ideas, the mind of the Jew. Their whole idea was to assimilate the Jews into their empire. We talked about last week how the Greeks were being threatened by the Romans. The Seleucids, the northern Greeks, the Syrian Greeks, Antiochus was the king of the northern kingdom, the Seleucid, Seleucid kingdom, the Greek kingdom that extended into parts of the Persian Empire on the east. And their being started to be threatened by the Romans. And what he wanted to do was to unite his kingdom so everyone would speak the same language, have the same ideals, same ideas, the same religion. That's what he wanted to do. His intention was not to destroy Israel, and not to destroy Jews, but to corrupt their ideas and make them, assimilate them into his empire. And that was the whole purpose. And therefore, he didn't want to destroy the oil. He wanted to defile the oil. That's what the oil symbolized. It was, the oil is the ideas, the thought processes, the subconscious of the Jewish people, the conscious of the subconscious Jewish people. He wanted to corrupt our ideas. He wanted to corrupt our thoughts with civilization, Greek civilization, except our idols, except our idea of aesthetics, uh, except the idea that man is on top of everyone else, or everything else rules the, rules the universe, only to come to gods. Man, man made gods in their image. Instead of us, we believe that uh, God made us in his image. They believe that man makes gods in their image, that we are the powers. We make the gods. Gods are made in our image. Greek gods are like human beings. They love, they fail. Uh, narcissism and other things, they have the human failings, human traits. Where Judaism says God is all about that. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. God is way above all that. We have to emulate God. We have to try to become God-like. And God has not become man-like, human-like. Whereas the Greeks believed that they were the gods, and really their gods followed them. They were the puppet masters. Now, that's uh, interesting. So it's completely ideas, antithesis of Judaism. They believed in the, hap in the healthy mind, in the healthy body. What does that mean? The beauty of the mind. The mind was the king. Anything you could think of. Intellect, intellect, the intellect. They worship the intellect and the body. They worship the intellect and the body. And it's very appealing for people. Why? Because why do I have to go outside myself? I can make myself into a semi-demigod. Many people did at that time. And the, the Greek processes went to the Romans. The Romans, look at how many Caesars appointed themselves as gods. And there was, a, there was an old thing going all the way back in time to Nimrod, where he became the, the first king to rebel against God, built the Tower of Babel, and proclaimed himself as a god. Okay, so this is an interesting idea. So it was a, it was a really, that's the symbolism of the oil. That's what the Greeks wanted to do. They wanted to defile our oil. What makes a human being tick is his consciousness, is his mind. If we can defile that mind, you, you got you got the person. That's it. The person is in the clutches, the Greek clutches, Hellenized. A person is Hellenized through their mind, not through their body. So therefore, we've got to attack their mind. We're not going to attack their bodies, which is interesting. So what happened was the Greeks did not smash and dispose of the oil. Timu Tashmani, we say in the Alanisim, they defiled the oil, which means it was a cultural war. It was a cultural war. Now, what's interesting is there's a beautiful uh, book called Sefer Haredi. You know, today they refer, people refer to the ultra-Orthodox or whatever as the Haredi. What does Haredi mean? Those that shiver. The shiverers. <laughs> which is an interesting term to call, you know, a Hared. He's Hared, but he's Hared in Dvar Hashem. He shivers at the word of God. That's what the idea of Haredim is. Not to make other people shiver, which today is like Haredim are there. They make other people shiver. They, they scare us. Haredim scare us. It's like a scary term today. But it's the idea of people who are scared by the word of God. People who take the word of God literally and uh, they fear the word of God. They fear Hashem. You know, it's people who fear Hashem. So he wrote a book called Sefer Haredim before the bad connotations of Haredim. But he wrote this book, Sefer Haredim. I don't know if we have become a bestseller today. 
but it's a very, very powerful book of Musa. And in that, he has a, a section of it. And he quotes David Amelech, Psalm 24, which we say every Sunday. It's a Psalm for Sunday. And this is not so famous. Psalm 23 is very famous, but Psalm 24, not so famous. But Psalm 24 is an amazing psalm. It's an amazing psalm. You've got to look at it, Psalm 24. Um, it's a psalm we say on Sunday. It's also a special psalm. It's a segula for Parnassa. person having a hard time making a living, just say Psalm 24. And just pay attention when you say it and think about the words, what you're saying. And over there, David Amel has a, a very powerful passage, which I've said many times. Who can climb the mountain of God? Beautiful idea. This idea of we're here. What is our purpose in life? Our purpose in life is to climb this mountain of God. The mountain of spirituality. We're trying to meet God. We're trying to meet, have a, a relationship with Hashem. We're trying to uh, greet Hashem. We're trying to meet Hashem. We're trying to talk to Hashem when we pray. We're trying to attach ourselves to Hashem. David Amel says, who can climb that mountain? Who can climb the mountain of God? Because there's one thing, climbing the mountain. And number two is, it's like the ladder of Jacob, right? You, you want to climb? It's not just the angels going up and down. We have to climb that ladder. We are the ones who have to climb the ladder. We have to try our best to go up without coming down. And that's what David Amel's question is. Who can climb the ladder to God? Who can climb the mountain to God? And then his second question is, and who can stand up there? It's one thing to climb mountain Everest. Have you ever heard of anyone camping on top and staying there? No, they want to come down straight. Why? Because you can't stay up there. There's no atmosphere. There's no oxygen to breathe. You've got to bring your own oxygen. Same thing applies in spirituality. The higher a person goes, the harder it is to stay there. That's very, very, very important idea. The higher a person goes, the etera grows with them. The evil inclination grows with the person. You see many great people sometimes fall. It's hard. It's hard to stay up that mountain, that holy mountain, the rarefied air, the spiritual uh, neighborhood of God. It's very hard. Angels can, yeah, human beings got to become angel-like to do that. Moshe Rabbeinu achieved that. He could be in the mountain of God. He spent 120 days, can you imagine, 40 days on Har Sinai, comes down, goes back up to pray for the Jews, comes down again, comes back again for the second tablets of 120 days, Rashi says, he's baked on the mountain. And he climbed the mountain of God and he stayed up there for 120 days. Now that's that's superhuman. That's the only human being I know of that achieved that. So who can stay up there, David Amel says. And then he gives criteria. He says, Naki Kapain, person with clean hands, obviously, no robbery and not touching other things that don't belong to a person and doing other things with one's senses. And then he says, Bar Levav, and a pure heart. What does that mean, a pure heart? That's exactly what I'm talking about. This is what the Greeks did not like. They didn't want any pure hearts. They wanted a defiled heart. They wanted to defile our minds. So here the Sefer Haridim says, what is a pure heart? Sefer Haridim says, he says, you have to understand, when a person wants to be close to God, there's only one way. And that, how do you get close to God? The answer is you think about God. When you think about Hashem, He's with you. Ramah says, whenever you mention, and that's a pasuk, pasuk says, anytime you, you cry out in my name, Hashem says, I'm with you. I'm with you when you cry out. We use my name, I'm with you. So a person thinks about Hashem in the head. We don't do this enough. At least when a person's praying, at least, but it's so hard to think about Hashem. So this person says, a bracha, think about the words, you, Hashem, source of all blessing. Think about Hashem, Hashem is with you. When you think about Hashem, you mention Hashem's name, is with you. So look what the Sefer Harim says. When you think about Hashem, we have to realize, he says, your mind becomes God's domain. Your mind becomes Hashem's room. Hashem is with you in your room. And how can you keep Hashem in a room if you don't clean that room? That room has got to be spotless. If you want the king to stay in your house, you better make sure that room is spotless and clean and, and everything good in there. Everything good in that room. And how much a person be very careful when they have a visitor in their house, how clean it has to be and spotless and speak and span. Now think about your God is in your house. He's in your house. What is your house? Your mind. God is in your mind. The importance is, that's what David Amar was saying, a bar levav. If you translate, the Raman says that when they try to use the word heart, it really is the mind. The mind is the heart. to. A person has a pure heart, which is a pure mind, a clean mind. If you want God in your mind, if you want to think about Hashem, which is the closest we can get to Hashem, 
was thinking about it. Then, when we learn Torah, we're thinking about Hashem, hopefully. When you do Brachot, you're thinking about Hashem. When you do Kiddush, Shabbat, you think about Shabbat, you think about Hashem, the creator of the world. So Hashem, a person should have a clean mind, otherwise Hashem says, I'm not coming in this. I'm not going to be your, your guest. That's what David Amel says. If you want to stay up there with Hashem, you have to have a clean mind. Bar Levav. So there he says, the king wants to stay with you, you better clean that room. All the dirt and the dust. And so he, he connects this to spiritual dirt. He hurray Avira, thinking about doing Averot. Bad thoughts, uh, anti thoughts. Um, so he, he put in the holy waters. How do you put in the holy waters? Wash your mind with your tears, he says. So interesting, just like you wash the floor, he says. Wash your <laughs> wash out the mind with the one's tears. Like we do on Yom Kippur, that's the holiest day of the year. Why? Because we're washing our minds with our tears. We're doing Teshuvah. And then we can make our minds a domain for Hashem. Make the head, the mind, the thoughts. It's so hard today. We're surrounded by all these bad things in the media and other things. It's hard to purify one's mind. Because we've got to know that purification. The mind is where we meet Hashem. The mind is where our souls and Hashem come together. The mind, our minds are where that's the holy space we have. That's got to be our bit of mikdash. Our bit of mikdash are in our minds. Okay, let's move on. So that's our bit of mikdash. That's why they wanted to use pure oil because the Greeks wanted to, they defile the oil. They wanted to defile our minds. Maccabees said the oil represents our minds. We've got to purify our minds. We have to purify our mouth, our minds. When we purify our minds, we'll get back our better mikdash. How can you go to a better mikdash and have a dirty mind? How can you have a filthy mind full of Averot, full of bad thoughts? You're going to God's house. If you want to bring God into your house, you have to purify the room. You have to go to God's house and you have to purify the room as well. How much more so? Why do we celebrate? Let's go into the next three interesting questions and we'll move on to dreams. Three interesting questions. Why do we celebrate a great military victory? Now, we don't focus so much. The rabbis are not so big on focusing on military victories. They focused on the candles, right? But really, you have to know, as we say in Alanisi, tremendously great military victory. You know, Jews have been fighting for thousands of years. People don't realize that. We're fighters. We're a nation of fighters. Till the Roman period. The Romans sort of tamed us. They killed so many of us. They killed more than Nazis. Percentage-wise, they killed more Jews than Nazis. Jews were smashed and broken and beaten. We couldn't fight. We just couldn't fight through the galut, through the terrible persecutions we never fought. Until 1948, Jews never fought, basically. Even though we fought in the ghetto, yeah, in the Warsaw Ghetto, a little bit, but we never really fought as Jews. We never had an army, we never had an air force, we never had a navy, we couldn't fight. Now, all of a sudden, Jews became fighters. It's amazing. It's, uh, it's, it's revolutionary. Jews fight. But for truth is, we've been fighting for thousands of years. We're fighting. Joshua led the Jews back into Israel. They had to fight. But prior to that, even Shimon and Levi destroyed a whole city by themselves. Uh, the Midrash says that if uh, Yosef would have pushed the, uh, his brothers through war, there'd have been a war and they'd have smashed Egypt. Just single handedly, Yehuda was like a one army by himself. Shimon and Levi were an army by themselves. These, these guys were tough. We don't really realize. We don't think of Yaakov Avinu as being tough, right? But think about it. He took a whole stone off the well that all the shepherds had to wait. All the shepherds gathered to take that stone off the well. He was stronger than like 20 men, it looks like. So we don't think about that. We don't think about Yaakov Avinu fighting the angel all night long and beating the angel. I mean, we don't even think about how strong he must have been to fight an angel. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, obviously, we talked about that. Is it literal? Not literal anyway. But it's it takes... Even you can't even think about a... a a weak person fighting an angel. I mean, the Torah wouldn't even discuss that if the Yaakov was not up to it, right? Yaakov would be the fights the angel, beats the angel. It's like, he was strong. We have to realize Jews were strong. Jews were, were uh, a fighting force. As a fighting force, they, no one could withstand them. I mean, we see this all through the ages, right? They fought Joshua, and then you have the judges. See the judges, Gidon, uh, Yit, uh, Yiftach, uh, all these great judges who are great military men. In fact, Recently, 1948, there was a British captain who the British didn't like so much, uh, Ord Wingate. Ord Wingate was a cousin of uh, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, but he, he, was, he was the opposite. He, he was busy training Jews to fight. He was training 
the Haganah. It's interesting in, in warfare. And he would use examples from our Torah um, to train his, uh, his recruits. The British sent him to help the Jews to defend themselves. So he trained the Jews. He was so successful that the British threw him out. But it's interesting, Ord Wingate, very interesting name. Look up Ord Wingate, interesting. So we celebrate, but the question is why? Okay, there's a military victory that we celebrate with tiny flames. Why? Why do we celebrate a military victory with no pomp and no fanfare, just lighting candles? That's number one. Number two, why did the miracle of Hanukkah happen after the fact? It's over. The story's over, right? They won the war. They go in the bed of Dash, They purify the bed of Dash, And now they, they light candles. Okay, why, the, why is the miracle of Hanukkah happening at the end? It should be at the beginning. Encourage them. Make a miracle at the beginning. Number three, what was the message Hashem intended for the miracles? Why these miracle of lights? So the answer to all three questions is that flame is a physical manifestation of the spiritual. It's interesting. In Judaism, when you talk about the soul, it's the word used for soul in Judaism is ner erokim nishmat adam, the flame of God. A soul is a flame of God. We have to understand that. A soul is Hashem's candle. Hashem uses the, our souls to light up the world. Our souls are meant to light up the world. They're not meant to spread darkness and evil in the world. They're meant to spread goodness and light in the world. That's our souls. That's why it's so important to have children. Says a person brings more souls into the world and spread more of God into the world just by bringing a child into the world. More souls, hopefully, more goodness in the world. That's that's the Jewish perspective. More souls in the world, more goodness in the world. We see today it's not always true. It depends on the quality of the soul. It depends on the quality of the light. But God's candle is the soul of a human being. You have to understand that. Candles represent spirituality. Candles are God's vehicle to show us spirituality. When we like candles, and that, you know, anything worthwhile, we celebrate with candles, right? Shabbat candles, Shalom Bayit candles, Hanukkah candles. Uh, if a person passes away, we light a candle straight away. Every dead body has to have a candle bite, even though you don't see it because it's in the home, it's in the, the place where the dead body is. There's a candle by the head of the dead body lit. And when the person's buried, that candle goes to the place where that person lived. That's the place to have the shiva, wherever the shiva is, there's a candle. That candle represents the soul of that person. It's interesting. So a candle is, is a spiritual God's candle. God's candle is the soul. It's a spiritual. The closer you get to the spiritual candle is a physical candle. It's a manifestation of divine spirituality. A candle is manifesting spirituality. It's interesting because till today, science is not fathomed what it is light light is a wave a particle that's debating has both qualities um that's my physics from 50 years ago but i know what it is now i'm out of touch with light what is light i know what the latest uh, thoughts are but it's the closest we can get kabbalah say to spirituality the closest we can get to spirituality is through the candles through the light of the candle when we talk about three different colors in the in the candles it's very very interesting uh, symbolism of the candle as it's true with the human spirit, a flame can die or a flame can soar. That's the soul. The soul can die, just cut it. Doesn't look bad things. The soul is cut off. We cut off sometimes, it's like suicide. It's a spiritual suicide. We can destroy our souls, or we can make our souls bigger than what they are now. We can grow the soul, or we can destroy the soul. Think about it. You can nurture your child's soul, or you can destroy your child's soul. But not just your child, we can do it to ourselves. We can do it to other people as well. By corrupting values, you can destroy a person's soul. That's what, exactly what the Greeks, Syrians wanted to do. They wanted to corrupt our souls. They wanted to destroy our spirituality. They wanted to stop our souls from soaring and getting closer to God and pushing them back down to the earth, pushing them back down into idolatry and bad things and immorality and other things. So as it's true with the human spirit, a flame can die or a flame can soar. It can be extinguished easily, just like a human spirit. It, this is so tragic, right? You see human beings, but it, uh, human beings, we either easy come, easy go. We come and we go. Into the, uh, and no one knows when they're going to go. And we see today how many soldiers are going around us um, tragically, tragically. So it's too easy. As a flame is like a flame. It can be put out very 
quickly, where it could soar. It can be extinguished easily or can light up the world. Our souls will light up the world. The message of Hanukkah is that the souls, our souls should light up the world, not just the Hanukkah candles. The Hanukkah candles just represent the soul, opposite of what the Greeks wanted. The Greeks wanted to defile the oil. They wanted to defile our minds. They wanted to defile our souls. We have to light up the world. The essence of the Jewish spirit, the miracle of Hanukkah, describes the ability of a small nation to provide light. There's rather shame, you know, we don't think about this, but you look at the historians, what they said about Jewish people. Uh, some of the great, greatest historians said good things about Jewish people, how we provided light and civilization to the people, the dark ages. We, people don't realize the dark ages in Europe were worse at the time where the Muslims were in the light, the Christians were in the dark. And when the Christian Muslims were in the dark, the Christians were in the light. So it's amazing how the only ones who were never in the dark were the Jews. The only ones who never had. Why? Because we had the Torah. We had something that other people don't have. So let's move on and talk about this light, our, dream, our heads, our minds. That's where dreams come into play. It's amazing. There's an interesting Gemara in, in Brachot. The Gemara says, there's a whole chapter about dreams in the Gemara in Brachot. In chapter 9 of Brachot, look at it. It's interesting, but it's very contradictory. There's so many different opinions. And that's the beauty of the Talmud is that there's a variety of opinions. So dreams, what about dreams? Are they, are they true? Are they false? Are they garbage? Not garbage. And the answer is, they're everything you want. They can be garbage. They can be true. And if they're true, they can be bad. If they're true, they can be good. And it follows interpretation. Does it follow interpretations? Does it follow? You have every single opinion voiced in the Talmud. Every different opinion. Now let's try and make head and tails of that Gemara. There's another Gemara. The Gemara says over there, a person who doesn't dream for a week is a wicked person. Now think about that. If a person doesn't dream for a week, he's a bad person, evil person. <laughs> we have to explain that. That's number one. Number two is the one that says, they never show a good dream to a bad person. Sorry, they never show a good dream to a good person and they never show a bad dream to a bad person. <laughs> if you try and try and make head or tails, of these sayings in the Gemara. Anyway, let's try and make some head of tales. So number one is, they don't show good dreams to, to a good person. Why? Because they want a good person to be on his toes. Always do Teshuvah. If everything's going right in a person's world, they'll never do any changes. They'll make changes. If everything shown to them in the dream is, is good, they will make changes. And Hashem wants good people to make changes in their lives. That's the difference between two different kinds of people. One person is willing to make changes in their lives. And one person not being willing to make any changes at all. And that's the uh, difference. Anyway, that's number one. Number two is, what does it mean that a person who never sees a dream for seven days is a bad person? What does that mean? And that really is the fundamental. What is the dream? And the answer is mostly a dream is the subconscious. What a person thinks about in the day, that's what a person gets at night. It just, it just comes out in the dream. So think about whatever you're busy with in the day. Normally you think about think about when you go to sleep, and that remains in the mind. That's, by the way, Jewish law is the best thing to think about before you go to sleep. This halacha is Shema Yisrael, the unity of Hashem, bringing Hashem into your life, making Hashem your king. That's how a Jew should sleep. That's the last thoughts. Sleep with different Torahs. Sleep with Torah, and you have a very pleasant night. A person's mind will be into spiritual things and spiritual dreams. I had a very spiritual dream once and that left, you know, unfortunately I don't see this every night. I wish I could see this every night. But sometimes, you know, you're into it. It was just after I made Aliyah. I was like on a spiritual high and I had this beautiful, amazing vision. I wish I could do that every night, but I'm not on that level. So I could see up to the level you're on. That's the dream you get. So it's very important to have a good pathway during the day. You have a good pathway in the day. You have a beautiful dream at night. So how do you get into that pathway? You have to start meditating on certain things. And one thing you have to meditate on is the Shema. Before you go to sleep, instead of counting sheep, <laughs> count the words of the Shema. Try and count the words because it always, you know, always miss it. I always miss it. Is it 248? Is it 248? That's a big discussion. Halakha. How do you get to 248 words of the Shema? The rabbis say 248 words in the Shwan, and they said it's not really. There's 245, we've got to make it up to 248, you have to add three extra words, or you have to repeat the last line. Anyway, it's interesting uh, to make up 248 words. Anyway, it's focusing on what you're focusing on. That's what 
That's the ladder of your dream. What you focus on during the day is the ladder of the dream. That's simple psychoanalysis, whatever it is, uh, simple common sense. What you think about in the day is what becomes out of the night. Now, it's interesting because the Torah talks about dreams. Now, it's interesting. Abraham never dreamed. He had visions. Now, visions are much higher than dreams. A prophecy is much greater than a dream. Why? Because a prophecy is actually something that's going to happen, hopefully. Well, if it's a good prophecy, it should happen. If it's not a bad prophecy, sometimes a person can change the future by its prayers, by doing teshuva. So we can change bad prophecies. But good prophecies, the Talmud says, have to come true. A good prophecy has to come true. And Hashem says, the land of Israel is given to your children, Abraham. That has to come true. There's no, there's no but, ifs and buts. When? That's another question. It doesn't say where. But it has to come true. That's a good promise in a vision has to come true. Whereas a dream is more wishy-washy than a, a vision. So Abraham and Yitzhak only have visions. They don't have dreams. The first of our forefathers to have a dream is Yaakov Avinu. Now Yaakov Avinu is having dreams. We know he had a dream about the angels going up and down the ladder. That's a very high-level dream. That's, that's more like a vision, but it's not a vision. Why? But it is a vision in a sense because there is a future, there is a foretelling of the future. There's a promise of Hashem to protect him. And again, a promise that his children will get the land. But it's not really a vision per se. It's, it's called a dream. It's called a halom. It's called a dream. It's, it's less than a vision. So obviously he's having holy thoughts because he's now leaving Eretz Israel. He's going into the unknown. He's going into his uncle, Laban, and he's, he's preparing himself. Rashi says he went 14 years to study in the house of uh, Shem and Eber to prepare himself. So he was, he was spiritual. He was, he was on a spiritual high and he had this dream, like you said. If you have a spiritual high, you have a dream. But it wasn't a vision. Was a lower level. And then, and we talked about this, we said Yaakov did not say Hashem was his God yet. You're the God of my father. You're the God of my, said, my God of Abraham, God of Yitzhak. But he doesn't say you're my God. Maybe that's why he didn't have the vision yet. Yaakov only has a vision when he's going down next week's parashah and he's going to Egypt. That's when Hashem appears to him in a vision. Yaakov has a dream, the ladder, and then in, in, uh, when he's in Haran, he has a dream, and he's dreaming about sheep. And then he has another dream, and the, and the angel says, go back to Israel. But he doesn't have a vision until he's leaving for Egypt. That's when he has a vision. That's when he's on a real high. That's when Yaakov really gets to the level of Abraham and Yitzhak, you can see, when he has a vision. Otherwise, Yaakov is much lower. He only has dreams. So that's a lower level, much lower level. And it's interesting because you have non-Jews who have dreams. In the Torah, the Torah brings down. Avimelech has a dream. Hashem warns Avimelech. This man's wife, he's a prophet, by the way. And that's his wife. Don't touch her or, you, or, or else. It was a dream of a warning. Hashem appeared. Can you imagine that? Hashem appeared to Avimelech, the king of the Philistines. In a dream, a warning. It's a warning. And he appears also to Laban. Lavan is out to get Yaakov. Yaakov ran away with Lavan's daughters as if he cared. His grandchildren as if he cared. But he ran away with all the money. He ran away with all the sheep. <laughs> That's what Lavan chases after him. And in that night, Lavan had a dream. Hashem appeared to Lavan in the dream and says, Lavan, don't say anything good or bad to Yaakov. Be very careful. Don't start with Yaakov. And so it's interesting. Hashem appeared to two non-Jews as warnings in their dream, as a warning sign in their dream. And then we come to Yosef. Yosef has dreams. Yosef is the dreamer. Yosef, Joseph is a dreamer. He's a dreamer, and he has two dreams. Now, what's fascinating is, the rabbis say, we don't know about dreams. We're not sure dreams come true or not come true. But if you have two dreams, the same night, you can assume there's a message of it. It's more likely that it's, it's a vision. It's more likely that it's, it's a message from God. A dream is by itself. It's just, uh, it's like uh, there's, no, there's no corn without a lot of uh, chaff. Most dreams are 90% chaff, just garbage, or 99% chaff. But if the dream is repeated, there's a message over there, repeated over and over, then there's more truth to it. And Yosef has two dreams. Now, it's interesting. Because the first time he dreams and he tells his brothers, the brothers say, oh, yeah, okay, you're going to be our ruler. The second time he dreams, he doesn't say that. They didn't say anything. He just says they were jealous. 
Why is that? So now we can understand that it's one dream, you can laugh at it, but there's two dreams, it's going to come true. The second dream proves that the first dream was true. And therefore they couldn't just laugh at it. They couldn't just uh, hate him. They now, they were, it was like they were jealous now. The second dream reinforced the first dream. It means the first dream is now going to come true. Really, he's going to be their leader. And this is a message from God. This is a, two dreams. This is like there's a message over there. You can't argue with this. And this way, they hated him now, but they didn't say anything. He said, oh, now this is true. We can't argue. We have to take this as a warning. And that's really the reason why they want to throw him in the pit, because now they know it's really going to happen. They have to do something. Two dreams in a row, that's diabolical. We see this also with Pharaoh. This week's parasha, Pharaoh has two dreams, one after the other. Oh, boy. That, yeah, see, it's interesting because his, uh, his magicians got it all wrong. Why? They, they said, yeah, it's two dreams, two separate dreams. And Yosef comes on and says, it's one dream. Hashem is bringing you one dream. It's, it's, it's one message. Two dreams with one message, the same message. And the reason why it's repeated is because it's going to be actualized pretty soon. So Yosef knew the secret. One dream, you can laugh at. Two dreams, you can't laugh at. Pharaoh had two dreams. Now, what's also interesting is the the butler and the baker. Now, each one had a separate dream, but it was the same night. It was like two dreams, and they were similar. Why? Because they're both ministers to the king. So therefore, it was like two dreams. They're both going to come true. At the same time, two dreams at the same time, two different people, but the same, occurring in the same room, three at the same, same time. Yosef said it's also one dream. It's the same thing. They're gonna, it's gonna come true. It's like two dreams repeated, and that was gonna come true. Now it's interesting because these are non Jews. It doesn't make a difference. There's no difference. A Jew has two dreams in a row, a non Jew has two dreams in a row. It doesn't make a difference. Because it's gonna pay attention. And uh, dreams have messages sometimes. If it's a, if the message was repeated over and over again. Hashem is trying to tell you something. Hashem is trying to tell us something. So this is fascinating, right? Dreams are fascinating. And uh, it, it's like an evolution of dreams, right? There's dreams of warning. There's dreams of, of, depends on what you're thinking. You're thinking holy thoughts. You have holy dreams. And then there's dreams which are like more predictive of the future. Now, what's the difference between a vision and a dream? The vision, of the vision we said, is predicting the future. But the person who has the vision is not living in the future. It's a big difference. A person who's dreaming is actually dreaming in the future. He's actually there. That's the difference. If I'm dreaming about the future, I'm in the future. But a person who has a vision of the future is not necessarily in the future. He's dreaming about something on future events which are going to happen, but he's, he's not there. He's not part of those events. Whereas the dreamer is actually part of those events. As you see with Yosef, yeah, he's in the field with the things and he's there. He himself is there. And they're bowing down to him in the second dream and he's there. So he's in the dream. Whereas the prophet is not necessarily in the dream. He's not in the vision. He's seeing the vision and he's understanding it's something happening in the future, but it's not. he's not there. So there's a big difference between a, vi- a dream, which is more egocentric, than a prophecy. A prophecy is more about the future. It's not about the person. It's not a person not involved. He's not engaged. Interesting. All right, let's move on. So there's different kinds of dreams. There's dreams of warning, Jewish dreams, non-Jewish dreams, both the butler and the baker and Pharaoh, Yaakov and Yosef, dreams. Interesting. These are, this is how, this how Breshit sort of ends off with this, on the note of dreams. It starts off with visions on a higher, very high level. It starts off with God speaking to Adam and Eve, which is, they're actually walking and talking and seeing at the same time, which is the level of Moshe Rabbeinu. It's interesting. No prophets could talk to God and be awake. Adam and Eve could be awake and talk to God. Noah could be awake and talk to God. It doesn't say he was sleeping. Whereas by Abraham and Yitzhak already were sleeping. They couldn't be on that level of Adam and Chava. Interesting. They're much higher, on a spiritual high than Abraham and Yitzhak. They could have visions at night, in dreams, in the night, but not awake. Their visions were at night only. But Moshe level Adam He went back to that level. He could have uh, visions of Hashem and talk to Hashem while he's awake, and he could just flip backwards and forwards. He could he could be in living now in reality, in physical reality, and flipping back to Hashem and living in a spiritual reality and coming back. That was the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu. Rambam says the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy was to flip in and out any time. Well, there was no other prophet like Moshe. One of the thirty principles of faith written by Rambam. 
There's no other prophet who could do that. He could flip backwards and forwards. He could be awake, talk to Hashem, and talk to a person, and flip back. And he liked, we see with the stories of Salafqad, the door of Salafqad, ask him, we want to inherit our father's uh, land in Israel. Can we? And he says, just wait a minute, let me ask God. Right then and there. Let me ask God. He turns back, he says, Hashem says, okay. <laughs> now, who can do that? Only Moshe Rabbeinu could do that. Adam and Hava could do that. They could do that. They could talk to Hashem and come back. No one else could do that. So they see that the level of prophecy went down from Adam and Hava to Noah and then to Adam and to Abraham and Yitzhak, and they had to sleep. The visions, prophecy, but sleeping. And then it went even further down dreams. The next generation only dreams. And we have to get to that level of dreams. We can get to the level of dreams. We can't get to prophecy, we get to dreams. And that's really what I want to talk about, the connection to Hanukkah. And that is the mind. The Greeks wanted to defile our minds. They wanted to change what we're thinking about. To make Jewish dreams into Greek dreams. Very important idea. To make our ideals, which is what we dream about. That's what the Gemara says. It says, if you don't sleep seven days, if you don't dream for seven days, you must be evil. What does that mean? That means every single one of us has to have aspirations. Our aspirations are our dreams. We have to have aspirations. What are my goals in life? They're very, very important. People don't even think about it. Don't spend two minutes a day, one minute a day, half a minute a day thinking about it. What is my goal in life? What am I trying to achieve? Now, we have a war going on. We have people just dying around us. But think about what a waste it is a person dies without even thinking what their goal is. What am I trying to achieve in my little life? That's what we all have to think about. What am I trying to do? What is my goal? What am I trying to do? What am I trying to achieve? Have I achieved anything? Have I, if I don't have any goals, I'm not going to achieve anything. So the, the critical thing is to have a dream. What is my dream goal in life? What do I want to achieve beside the physical aspects of money and wealth and health and all those good things? What else am I trying to achieve? What am I trying to achieve for my children, my grandchildren, my posterity? How will the world remember me? Like the thing that woke up, you know, Alfred Nobel, his, his own obituary. That's what they say. That's a legend. What are they going to say about me? That's weird. That's every time it says you go to a, a, a funeral or something, but it's got to wake a person up and say, what am I living for? What are my goals? What are the dead person's goals? How I'm living and, you know, how our parents lived and how I, I was thinking today, you know, I'm seeing, I had my, one of my sons over and I say, his children were over and they were singing this Hanukkah song. And I, I said, I wish my father could see this, my grandfather. And I said, maybe they are seeing this. How proud they would be to see their grandchildren and great-grandchildren continuing the, the chain of tradition, which is my dream and, and, their, and their dream. And hopefully it'll be my children's dream as well. That's the dream. The dream is continuity, Jewish continuity of service of Hashem. And the dream is to get closer to Hashem. Our dream is to get closer to Hashem. That's our dream. Get the world closer to Hashem. That's the dream. And that's what we're trying to do. And let me just finish off with this. The Torah says this week, as Pharaoh was dreaming, and this week we perform the happiest holiday of Hanukkah, the last holiday we had, Hanukkah, we celebrate the miracles Hashem performed for us to enable us to continue our unique way of life, a life full of meaning, and purpose, hopefully, in serving Hashem. We'll also read this week the Torah portion of the kids, which includes the dreams of Pharaoh, where he dreamt about Egyptian society and the challenges of his era, which is uh, famine and, and plenty. Now, it's interesting, and we talked about how the level of prophecy went down from Adam and Eve down to Noah, and then eventually went down visions and went down to dreams. And there's also a change in the focus of the identity of the dreamer. Earlier, the Torah informs us of the dreams of the forebears, Yaakov and Yosef. Then we talk about the dreams of the butler, the baker, and then the pharaoh. The exiled Yosef, interesting, think about this. Yosef's now in exile. He's in Egypt. He doesn't dream anymore. He's interpreting and actualizing other people's dreams. This is something we have to think about. This is not, a, this is not what we want to do. We want to think about our own dreams and actualize our own dreams. Yosef becomes the great viceroy of Egypt, but he's not actualizing his dreams. He's actualizing Pharaoh's dreams. He interprets and actualizes the dreams of Pharaoh. The Torah hints here to future exiles of Jewish people. We're going into other exiles. 
and were working and actualizing other people's dreams. How many Jewish ministers there were in, in many countries around the world actualizing the dreams very successfully of other people, other nations, making other nations great. The Jew will help bring about the fulfillment of the nation's dreams with the application of their own individual genius. The great Jewish minds will apply themselves to the advancement of science other people's dreams instead of the advancement of the Torah. Eventually, their dreams will become ours, and that's what the Greeks wanted. They wanted their dreams, their civilization, their aesthetics expressed in art, culture, the beauty of the human form. Just look around. Go to America and see how many Jews endowed yeshivot, and how many Jews endowed libraries and museums and colleges and other things and see where the Jewish dream has gone. Where has the Jewish dream gone? This is really, this is something, a wake up course. It's beautiful because it's interesting because how Hanukkah plays into the events today, how many Jews are just withdrawing support from these Ivy League colleges. It's like a slap in the face, you know? I, I, I adopted your dream. I wanted to talk about your dream and look what you did to us. Anti-Semitism, it's a slap in the face. Maybe it's a message from Hashem telling us, you know what? Your dream and their dreams are two different dreams. You actualize your own dreams as a Jewish person. Actualize your own dreams. Hopefully they'll wake up and they'll say, you know what? We are Jews, number one. And we're actualizing other people's dreams and it's going the wrong way. We should actualize our own dreams. So the Greek civilization thrived on the physical aesthetics, art, culture, beauty of the human form, and the ability of the body to perform the Olympics. The Hellenized Jew took for himself the dreams and aspirations of the Greeks. The Maccabees fought to restore our own way of life. Our dreams come first, not your dreams. Don't defile our oil. Don't defile our dreams. Don't defile what we're thinking is the main things in life, our purpose in life. And this is important. And that's how we end off the 126. Psalm 126, a song of a sense. When Hashem will return the captivity of Sion, of Zion, we will be, we will be like dreamers. When Hashem returns our exiles to the Holy Land, which, which we're living here, I'm living here, where exiles came back to the Holy Land, we return to dream our dream. That's what it means. Ayinu kechomi, we'll be like dreamers. What does that mean? We will now be dreaming Jewish dreams. The dream of fulfillment of the vision of our great nation. Living a life of joy in the service of Hashem, his brother Hashem. We will all live, have Jewish dreams, Jewish aspirations, transmit our heritage to our holy generations in the future, and it'll be a happy Hanukkah for all of us. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.